So there's a gender pay gap. And apart from the gender pay gap, there's also a phenomenon called the feminization of poverty, where if you look at majority of poor people in the world, it's women, right? But then when you include race, so we know that women are earning less money than men. But when you include race, then you, then you see that in America, the median, the median wage for white women is $40,000 and the median wage for black women is $100. Welcome back to the DFN Podcast. I'm your host, Ali. Our guest today is Naomi Nyamwea, who will be walking us through Data Feminism 101. Naomi is the research officer for the Malala Fund, where she conducts data-driven research and policy analysis to support Malala Fund's advocacy for girls' education. She's taken on an advisory role at DFN as one of our board members, as she's passionate about bringing more women and minorities into the world of data. Today we're going to be covering the principles of data feminism, discussing how standard practices in data science reinforce existing inequalities, and exploring how we can leverage data to challenge and change unequal distributions of power. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us here today, Naomi. Thank you for having me. I am really excited to get to do this and have this important conversation. Awesome. So for those of you who aren't familiar with the term data feminism, it essentially refers to a new way of thinking about data science and ethics that is guided by intersectional feminism. So that term intersectional feminism, a good place to start. So Naomi, how would you describe intersectional feminism? Intersectional feminism is a term that was initially coined by Kimberly Crenshaw in 1989. So Kimberly Crenshaw is a law professor and she defines it as a lens or like a prism for seeing the ways in which various forms of inequality tend to operate together and exacerbate each other, which basically means that these different forms of inequality are not simply a sum total of their various parts, but the inequalities multiply. And this frame of thinking has been developed further by Black feminists and also by post-colonial thinkers in quote-unquote, the global South. And basically what it does is it it acknowledges that there's an equal distribution of power in the world. And power tends to lie in the hands of white people that are white, male, able-bodied, cis-heterosexual. And so in order to truly interrogate the ways in which power operates and the ways in which inequality shows up in the world, we have to consider people's various identities. And we also have to be honest about the fact that all inequality is not created equally. So sometimes discrimination can be compounding. So I'll give an example. So something that's obvious to a lot of us or to all of us is that the way the world treats women and the way the world treats men is very different. So obvious, so there's a gender pay gap. And apart from the gender pay gap, there's also a phenomenon called the feminization of poverty, where if you look at majority of poor people in the world, it's women, right? But then when you include race, 
So we know that women are earning less money than men. But when you include race, then you then you see that in America, the median the median wage for white women is forty thousand dollars, and the median wage for black women is a hundred dollars. So the way those inequalities compound each other is the basis of intersectionality. And if we go further, if we look at black women in the global south. Um, women that have inherited the legacy of colonization, then the inequality that they face is incomparable to the inequality that's faced by a woman that's marginalized in America, but has the privileges of where she was born geographically. And I think that like encompasses the thinking of intersectional feminism or intersectionality. Thanks for that definition, Naomi. That was great. I think it's important to highlight that today we're talking about data feminism. And although that term has the word feminism in it, we are really trying to encompass all those inequalities and how they compound on each other. And on that note, I think it's important to talk about how the term feminist history of feminism in the United States, for example, the women's rights movement of the 1960s was very much segregated from the civil rights movement in which African-Americans were fighting for equal rights and female African-American activists of those times often speak of their experiences, um, a feeling like they had to choose a side, meaning either fight for their right as a woman or fight for their rights as an African-American. And people today are beginning to realize that feminism must be intersectional in those ways if it seeks to address the challenges of the present. With that being said, Naomi, how do standard practices in data science reinforce these existing inequalities? That's a that's a really great question. And I think that um, <clears throat> we have to start from just the realization that we live within a context. And so everything that we do is done within the context that we live in. So um, data science reinforces existing inequalities in many ways. The entire life cycle of, of data in itself can reinforce inequalities. So it begins from data collection. Who are we collecting the data from? Who is not seen in the data collection? How is the data collected? How is it stored? How is it aggregated? How do we build the algorithms that we're feeding this data into? What lens do we use to interpret the data? What conclusions are we drawing? What are we doing with this data? And I think with the expansion of AI and like big data, uh, the situation can it can get worse, especially if we don't practice what um, I see is called as data hygiene in the present day. So basically, there's the fact that the private and public sectors are increasing are increasingly turning to AI systems and machine learning algorithms to automate decision making. And so what we're seeing is like mass scale digitization of data. And these technologies are being used everywhere. They're being used in economic sectors, transport, retail, energy, everywhere. And so, and, and they're also being used by policymakers and decision makers. So we're seeing that AI is now having an impact on democracy and governance since these computerized systems are being used to improve accuracy and they're also being used to drive objectivity. 
in government functions. But then as a result, these the step-by-step instructions that you use, that you give your computer to, to perform certain tasks. And these are becoming more and more sophisticated. And these, these algorithms are obviously influenced by the identities of the people that, they are, that are creating them. They're influenced by their preferences. They're influenced by their ways of thinking. And as we know, data science tends to be white male, cishet, able-bodied. And so then in that way, the AI in itself can be biased. And in like the pre-algorithmic world, we had human beings, actual human beings that were making hiring decisions, that were making advertising decisions, that were making lending, criminal sentencing decisions, all those things were being done by human beings. But we've decided that in order to streamline this process and like streamline decision making and make it more quote unquote objective and to improve fairness and transparency, we're going to use AI. But what we see is that this can take a very hard lift. So for example, Amazon used between 2017 and 2018, I'm not quite sure when it was, they discontinued the algorithm or the system that they used to use to hire people because 60% of employees at Amazon were male, 74% of employees of managerial positions were held by men. And this was because the algorithm that was used to select like potential candidates for roles was based on 10 years worth of CVs received by Amazon and these CVs were being received by were being received from white men. And so you have an algorithm that's going to penalize a CV that or a resume that has the word women. And so women that went to women's colleges were being penalized and didn't get to make it to um, the interview stage simply because they went to a woman's college because of the data that was used to build this system. And so then if there's no like care, if there's no thought that's put into building systems, if there's no thought that's put into the data that's fed into this machine learning system, then it's very easy to entrench inequality inadvertently. Another another study done by Princeton University showed that there was bias in word associations in a lot of off-the-shelf machine learning AI software. And so they found that European names were perceived better than African-American names and that the words woman and girl were more likely to be associated with the arts and not associated with science. So boy and male was associated with science and mathematics and girl and woman was was associated with, with art. And I mean, this is an off-the-shelf machine learning um, software. So just in that way, it's the system we operate in. We operate in a patriarchal system. We operate in a, a, in a racist system. And so those hierarchies keep being reproduced. Your examples have brought up a really good point that people tend to perceive data and algorithms as something objective. But what we don't understand is that people are programming these algorithms. And the scary thing is, is that these algorithms are not only reflecting our biases, but they're, they're often amplifying them, which can be a scary thing. One other example that I actually wanted to mention on this front is something known as redlining, which is a term that people may have become familiar with recently. 
It basically describes how banks rated the risk of granting loans to potential homeowners based on demographics, specifically race and ethnicity, rather than just creditworthiness. And in far too many cases, data-driven solutions like this are deployed in a similar way, meaning in support of the interests of people in power rather than the interests of the communities whose, whose data these systems rely upon. So the reason I wanted to bring this up is because there's this question of, of power that comes with data. So my question for you, Naomi, is can we leverage data to challenge and change these unequal distributions of power? So I think the thing about, as you've said previously, a lot of people tend to think that data is objective. And so data is accepted as hard evidence. It's kind of privileged over um, the more qualitative anecdotes of people's experiences. And so given that we know this, we can use hard data to create a picture. So we can ask the right questions. And I think that's where it begins. What questions are we asking and how do we want to answer them? And we can use data to give us answers to the right questions. I would guide you to 100questions.org. And it's a group of people that are trying to crowdsource the most important questions that pertain to inequality. So what are the 100 most important questions that we can use data to answer in order to make like the world a better place and like a more habitable place for everybody. And so that's one way. We can use data to show that inequality exists and we can use it to support evidence-based efforts to promote equity. And so we can use projects that use data to improve existing policies. We can use it to identify the policies that are unable to address systemic failures. We can use data to show the effectiveness of policies that have been adopted in some places and see how we can replicate them in places where there is more inequality. And yeah, I think at the root of it is just to ask better questions. We have to start by asking better questions and then use data to answer these questions. And since we're talking about data feminism, I will reference the book Data Feminism, and they talk about these seven pillars of data feminism. And I think that it it provides us with like a really interesting way of thinking about how we use data in a way that's fairer, but also how we can use data to create fairness. And so the first principle is an examination of power. So before we take on any data analysis or do any analytics, we have to examine where it is that power lies in that context and just be very cognizant of the way power operates in our world, but more especially in the world of that data in that population. And the second principle is to challenge power. And so then as data scientists, we have to have it within us, the need or the want to challenge power. And the third principle is to elevate emotion and embodiment, which might be a bit difficult for more numerate minds. But basically what this means is that we have to treat this data with care and we have to recognize that this data represents actual people, actual human beings. And so then everything that we do must be in respect of the lived experiences of the people who have so willingly given us their data as a data point. But this data point represents 
our whole life. It, it represents a full person. And I think that if we keep that in the back of our minds and we're able to use data in a way that doesn't continue to make the world a more difficult place for a good number of people. Another, another way we can use another data feminist principle is rethinking binaries and hierarchies. This asks us to rethink gender binaries to which which would also encourage us to think about more or less mainstreamed genders. For example, we don't have any like reliable data on the number of transgender people that have been murdered because of their gender. And that's a place to start. Collecting that data is a place to start, right? And then the way that we choose to analyze that data is another place. The way we choose to use that data is something else to do, but we have to rethink binaries and we have to rethink hierarchies. And this also really highlights the fact that there is a big lack of gender disaggregated data. And so just rethinking these hierarchies and rethinking why it is that we think this data is important and this bit of data is not. The other the other principles are embrace pluralism, which might be a bit more difficult for again more numerate minds where it's like it, it it either is or it isn't, but things can be many different things. And I think that this comes along with our analysis to to really think about what the data is telling us. But this also means that we have to value different perspectives. And so then when we're in a room and when we're analyzing data and when we're making decisions about our data, it's really important to look around the room and see who is missing from the conversation because that's a voice and that's a lived experience that could make all the difference in how fair the product that we come up with is. The last two principles are consider context and make labor visible. And I think this make labor visible point is also really important. I'll just go back to, I think, something that Ali and I had discussed earlier, which is a book that I'd recommended, which is Who Cooked Adam Smith's Dinner? And it basically talks about the invisible labor of women. As you all may know, Adam Smith is considered the father of economics and he created the invisible man. And the invisible man is basically the foundation upon which all economic theory is based, which is the fact that a butcher doesn't make the best meat because he cares that you eat the best meat. He makes the best meat because he cares about the most profit. And so it takes away kindness and care and love and all and all these other things that are part of the invisible economy. But the biggest point that it makes is that Adam Smith was a middle-aged man who lived in his mother's house his entire life. And his mother cooked his dinner and his mother washed his clothes and his mother took care of him. And without the labor of his mother, Adam Smith would never have thought of the economic man. But yet in his economic model, he does not account for that labor, which would, which is, I mean, obviously he doesn't because he's a man. And, and that's the point that we have to make labor visible. And so we have to think about the things that aren't necessarily captured in data. And we can think about how to capture that and make the invisible work visible. Naomi gave a great overview of the book Data Feminism by Lauren F. Klein and Catherine Dignazio. Uh, for those of you who haven't read it, it's a great book that will dive into those pillars in more detail. And I would, I would highly recommend it. Naomi, one thing that you highlighted is 
that when you're having a conversation about whether it be a product or a policy, you need to look around and see who's missing from the conversation, who is in that room. And that is something that is, is so important, especially in the world of data. An issue in the world of data that we're starting to see more and more is something known as the data science diversity gap, which refers to the fact that the data workforce is overwhelmingly white and male. So why is this an issue and how can organizations go about creating a more diverse and inclusive workforce? Why is this an issue? And I think that just goes back to context and the world in which we operate in. It's just an issue of replication of the racist patriarchal systems that we live in and we see it and we see it everywhere, but we see it a lot in the STEM fields. And as you've said, there's a data science diversity gap. As someone that works at Malala Fund, I'm really passionate about education. And so then I'm obviously going to say that it begins from it begins from schools and we need to get more girls interested in STEM. And I don't even think it's a lack of interest. I think it has to do more with social norms and just the belief that the hard sciences are for men and the arts and the soft sciences are for women. And so I think that it would need for there to be like an entire transformation societally. And although it might be difficult for us to drive that transformation, what we can do is have farms that sponsor events for women in STEM or that make presentations to get more girls and women interested in this kind of work. Another thing to do, I think, is that within within data organizations, there might be few women, yes, but I think there are also much fewer women at the top. And so I think another good move for organizations would be to promote women at the same rate as they promote men and to and to get women at those decision-making tables because um, their, their voices, their perspectives, their point of view, all of that would be very important in getting more women through the door. And obviously, there's also the work of seeking out employees and also doing the work of looking within the organization to make sure that when you seek out diverse employees, when you seek out women, when you seek out Black people, when you seek out differently abled people, you have a culture that is conducive for them to feel comfortable and, and to want to stay within the organization. I definitely agree. It does start with equality of, of education and equality of opportunity, but as you highlighted, it's so important to make sure that we continue to engage and empower those newcomers and those, those minorities and, and women as we continue to progress throughout their careers and, and to kind of embed those values into all organizations. And with that being said, I think our conversation so far has made clear that data feminism isn't only about women and it takes more than one gender to have gender inequality and more than one gender to work towards justice. But a lot of people, men non-binary and women alike, often feel uncomfortable with, with the word feminism as it still carries with it a radical stigma. So that's something that makes it difficult to kind of have these conversations within our organizations and promote um, this diversity and the benefits of having a diverse workforce within your organization. So. I have two questions on this front. 
One is how can we encourage everyone of all genders and all races to be a part of this conversation and to feel welcome in this conversation? And two, for people such as those in our audience today who understand the importance of feminist thinking in work and the importance of diversity in the workforce, how can they go about starting this conversation with their colleagues, friends, and family? I think we just all have to be okay with discomfort and we have to go out of our comfort zones and we have to be okay with making people uncomfortable. And I think there's an important balance that we need to strike where we're not making people too uncomfortable that they disengage, but we're also not making the conversation so comfortable that there's no actual change that we're bringing about. Like you mentioned, there was the civil rights movement. And I assume in that time, talking about race was not comfortable, but it had to be done, right? And people came around eventually, and some people didn't come around. And that's the thing with the world. Not everyone is going to come around. So you can only do what you can. But I am very wary of people not having conversations because they don't want to make people uncomfortable. And I think, especially for me, my experience at Malala Fund, we're very brave, we're very bold because we're guided by Malala herself, who was brave and bold and came face to face with, you know, Taliban extremists and got shot in the head. And so it's it's just one of those things where it's just something that we have to be okay with. And I think for me, Um, I'll be honest and say that I am more radical in my thought and I'm more radical in my approach. So I might not be the right person to answer this question because there's definitely work for the centrists or the centrists who are not really centrists, but who are able to take a more centrist approach and who are and who are able to be more diplomatic. And so there's definitely space for that. But as far as I'm concerned, I'm okay um, <laughs> with letting people sit in discomfort. I think something that something that tends to work is personalizing the experience. So when you talk about, for example, um, gender inequality, or when you talk about racial inequality, and you talk about it as those people over there, then it's very difficult to get people to care about certain things. But when you personalize it, if 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 you can think of a friend that you have who's like of a different gender, of a different race, and then you make it about them. Imagine if this happened to them. Imagine if this product changed their life for the worse in a way that it wouldn't have if we were more careful in the way that we used data. Or imagine if this thing happened to you, would you like it if it happened to you? If, for example, you are a Black, disabled, lesbian woman, is that something you would, you know? So I think maybe personalizing experiences really drives a point home. I absolutely love both your whole answer, but the first part in particular, you know, if they feel uncomfortable, so what? Let them feel uncomfortable. No one can change without discomfort. So we need to have that conversation. And, you know, maybe a lot of the time you'll discover that there are other people within your organization who feel the same way, but are uncomfortable to bring that up. And the second half of your response about personalization, one thing that you didn't mention specifically, but along the same lines, you said, you know, make it resonate with them in one way or another. Like imagine if it were them. Another idea on that same front is is speak their language. So as 
much as it sucks that you have to frame it this way, if you're speaking to a corporation or if you're speaking to a government official, I mean, both corporations and governments are going to financially benefit from viewing problems through a feminist lens. So from the corporate side, they have the potential to capture whole new demographics and on the government or equality, which doesn't isn't like directly linked to profit, they're going to be saving money on healthcare costs or the, from women not dying or, or getting injured from these unequal systems. So speaking their languages is just another point to add to that along the same lines. I totally agree with that. It's really easy to incentivize people if you show them how it benefits them, right? So speaking the language, I see that. I, I see that working. For me personally, from like an advocacy perspective and like with the work that I do, it's it's something that we really grapple with because, I mean, taking girls' education, for example, girls' education is a right. And so girls should be educated just for the sake of their education it doesn't matter if it's good for the world it doesn't matter if it's if boys are getting educated girls should get educated right but as you said you have to be able to speak the language and so then you have to be able to quantify and you have to be able to show why it is good when really it's just right and i guess that that works it works for governments it works for corporations and yeah a lot of organizations are very self-serving and so then you have to show them how it serves themselves. Totally. And for those of you who aren't aware of the associated with educating girls, it's crazy. It's, it ranges from climate change to just elevating the society as a whole. And this is kind of slightly off topic, but if you're not familiar with all the benefits that come with educating girls, I would highly recommend reading up on that because it's, it's an incredibly powerful tool, tool for a variety of things. I would just like to take a moment to encourage those in the audience today to take a moment to reflect on your work, whatever that may be, and try viewing it through a feminist lens and taking the approaches that we've discussed today. And I think that you will observe that this may change the way you approach problems within your your organization or your company in the future. And yeah, thank you again, Naomi, for being here. Thank you. To stay up to date on Data Feminism Network events, check out our website at www.datafeminismnetwork.org. If you're a fan of the show, follow us on Instagram at Data Feminism Network and on Twitter at Data Fem Network. You can also find us on LinkedIn, where we post event updates and share job opportunities related to data equity and inclusion. Be sure to tune in to next week's episode of a special Data Feminism Book Club review, where we'll be reflecting on our three-part Data Feminism Book Club series. 